our Every Nation mission is that we exist to honor God by establishing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible churches and campus ministries in every nation. And campus ministry is really not a priority for every nation. It is the core of who we are. It's who we are. And this is what, you know, Pastor Steve has always said, the, uh, pres the president of our movement, but also Pastor Roger preaches that, um, that we, we're not, it's, campus ministry is not a priority. It is a core of who we are. We plant most of our churches out of either planting a campus ministry or a church would be planted very close to a campus ministry. Um, and this is how we've grown. And so, and, and I'm so grateful that we make campus ministry a core of who we are because I don't think I would be standing here if it weren't for campus ministry. I gave my life to Christ in campus ministry, although I have to confess that my parents thought that I gave my life when I was 12 years old. Um, however, my, you know, the, the, my life or the fruit of my life didn't really say that I gave my life to Christ. So I think that I gave my life when I came to university, and it was through campus ministry. Um, and I want to just quickly share with you why we do campus ministry. This is not, you know, part of the message, but just to share the, the, the eight reasons why we do campus ministry. Because future leaders of society are on the university campuses. Um, and this is how many of us were, were identified on campus. The second thing is that the values of the campus become the values of society. And this is so true because we've seen, even with the previous leaders um, who've led either in our nation or, or many nations, um, actually were at a university campus. Um, Robert Mugabe studied at, at Forte. Um, here in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was on the same campus. Um, and I could go on and on and on um, of different um, um, leaders who came from universities. So the values of the campus become the values of society because of those people who leave the campus and go into society. So it's a strategic harvest field. The third is that you reach a student, you reach a family. I'm a testament of that because I got saved and I went on to preach the gospel to my entire family who were not impressed with me at all. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to, to, to say that 10, 15 years later, most of them have actually committed their lives to Christ. Number four, it's where movements start, whether good or bad. And have we seen good or bad movements start from the university? Number five is that it's a strategic age window of getting people to Christ. It's so true because students at, the, at the, that age gap, they're still trying to make up their minds about what they want to do with their lives. It's harder when people reach the age of 25. So 18 to 25 is, very, is a very strategic age group to reach people for them to actually make that kind of commitment. And some of them actually stay with that commitment for the rest of their lives. So again, it's a strategic move. Number six, trainable army on campus. Whenever we try to make changes, it's actually easier to do it on campus than it is to do it in a community church because people are quite established there and they don't have time to be like making changes. But students are always ready for action. So they are a trainable army. Um, and this is why it can be good and dangerous if you reach young people. Number seven, international students are on our campuses and different campuses, especially the major campuses in South Africa. You get a lot of students from the rest of Africa. Um, and that's a strategic move to reach this continent and the rest of the world. Lastly, God promised to pour down his spirit on sons and daughters. And so this is why we do campus ministry. 
Won't you please turn with me to Matthew 28, verse 16 to, 8 to 20. And this is where we're going to pick up our message from t- for today. We're going to start in verse 16. Usually, whenever we talk about the Great Commission, or at least I talk about the Great Commission, I usually start from verse 18. You know, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. But tonight, we're going to start in verse 16, and you'll see why. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to focus on the first part of it, that Jesus talks to the 11 disciples um, and tells them or directs them to go to Galilee. This is quite interesting. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he direct them specifically to Galilee? Well, just a a bit of a setting here. Jesus was about to leave, right, for good this time. But this is not the greatest news now for the disciples because they keep getting these bad news, right? They walk with Jesus. They experience all these miracles. They experience all these teachings and, and just walking with this king of Israel, according to them, that was going to come and change the world. And then Jesus keeps telling them about dying. I mean, I don't know how about you, but I don't know how you would feel if you've got this leader that, you know, is supposed to be the son of God and supposed to be the king of kings, but he keeps talking about dying. Dying for what? Like, we're supposed to change the world. You, you're not going to die. It's kind of like those people who, like, worship and they want to see the face of Jesus until they face death, and they're like, not now, Jesus. Um, Isn't that funny every time? Um, But this is what Jesus kept doing, walking with them, and he kept telling them what was about to happen. And so, but I don't think that, not I don't think, Scripture shows us that they were not ready for what was about to happen. But he left the clues for them to be able to believe after. So then, you know, crucifixion happens. Then resurrection happens. And this is great news because he is risen, but then he comes back now to say, but now I'm leaving for good. I would be in an emotional state if I were like one of the disciples. So here's Jesus telling them to go to the mountain in Galilee because he was going to leave again. But before he leaves, he was going to leave them with a message. If you knew, now it's not going to happen, don't worry. But if you knew that, if, in fact, if 10 minutes after the service, I left here and crashed in a car accident... Most of you would remember most of the words that I preached today because those would be the last words. And my family would probably haunt all of you wanting to know what were the last words that she said? What did she do? How did she react? What was she saying? Who had coffee with her? Who had a conversation with her? That's how important the words of someone who's about to leave are. And Jesus is about to leave them with the most important words. So he sends them to the mountain of Galilee. But why direct them to this specific place? Why to the mountain in Galilee? And you're probably thinking, could you answer the question already? You've asked us five times. (laughs) The mountain of Galilee in the time of Jesus. In fact, the theologian um, and and historian N.T. Wright um, 
sheds light on, on, on why Jesus would have said what he said. Because the mountain of Galilee was, a, um, and I'll read it quickly, the mountain in Galilee in the time of Jesus was a hangout spot for the holy revolutionaries. Um, these are the people who are very zealous for the kingdom of God. Um, they would do everything and anything to overthrow the pagan Roman um, kingdom. This was their job. So they would go up to the mountain to plot, to talk about this. They were quite zealous about it, and they would do, they would do anything to, to overthrow it, even by force, if they have to. And so Jesus sends them to this mountain. The disciples would have been aware of the fact that he's sending them to this mountain. That means that there's a mission. That means that they are about to turn into these revolutionaries. They are about to overthrow something, right? They, must have, they, they would have been aware of that. So the first thing that I want to talk about this evening is the place, the place being the mountain of Galilee that Jesus sent them to. And I've already asked why Galilee. But the reason why I'm asking why Galilee is because why not Jerusalem? That would have been a more appropriate place for Jesus to actually send them because there they don't need to over-explain themselves. People are quite educated about like the word. So why not Jerusalem, the center or the epicenter of religion. But no, Jesus chooses Galilee. Well, the first thing about Galilee is that it was also known as the place as the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people of Galilee were not religiously educated. In other words, they were ungodly, they were irreligious people, and that's Galilee. Sounds familiar? And Jesus said to them, I'm going to tell you to establish the kingdom in a place where people are irreligious. Where has the Lord sent you? Who are the people that you find around you? Does it sometimes feel like it's almost like choking in terms of how ungodly people can be? But that's not hard to imagine in our nation and what we're facing and what we go through on a daily basis. And this is not a political statement at all. I'm just talking about different hardships, whether it's Durban and the, and the floods that have happened, or it's COVID in the past two years, or even the state where we are politically. Number two, Galilee was not just called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was also called um, Galilee of the Nations because it was a melting pot. It was inhabited by Assyrians, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, and others. In other words, it was a place of the nations. This was a, a very strategic place for Jesus to send them. And this is why this is so important to actually note, because we call to reach the nations. And hence, Jesus mentions it later, that go and make disciples of all nations. And so, why not send them to a place where there is an example of what they're looking at? That the people around you shouldn't even look like you. And we're quite privileged at every nation, I, I believe, that we get to actually worship together with different nations, that we get to worship together with different people, that we get to worship God together with people who don't look like us. That is a blessing because not everybody actually gets to experience that. So don't take it for granted. See it as a blessing that you see people of different color in this congregation because what a blessing it is. And also, how awkward would it be when we get to heaven and you realize that, actually. <laughs> so this is a good practice for us. 
The third thing is that Galilee was insubordinate. They were known for their rebellion. In fact, rebellion was, was so common in Galilee that the term Galilean to the Romans meant rebellious. How crazy is that? So here Jesus is telling them that they should go to this mountain because he wanted to establish his kingdom. He wanted to establish his kingdom where people were irreligious, where people were interracial, where people were rebellious. And in supporting it, Jesus said, that's where we're going to establish this kingdom. This is where he was sending them. So it's not just a random line in verse 16. There's a purpose to why he said, go to the mountain of Galilee and not Jerusalem. So where you find yourself specifically for the students who go on the campus, this is where you find different people coming from different backgrounds and different cultures who are irreligious, who are rebellious from different nations. You're in the right place because this is the same thing that Jesus told the disciples, same place to go to, is the same place that Jesus is calling us to go to. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the rebellious. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the rejected. The kingdom of God is the kingdom for, the, for those who are in the dark. It's not just for us who are in the light. We, the light. we are the light that's supposed to shine in the darkness. The kingdom of God is for those who are despised and those who are discriminated against. Do you know it's easy to despise a place of the Lord or where the, pla the place where the Lord places you because of people's rebellion, because you just don't get along with the people, because you're not aligned or in line with those people. I know that I find it difficult when I just, you know, I'm around people who don't think the way I think, talk the way I talk. It's even worse when you're part of like a movement where you can just like become one big family and, you know, it's different nations. So whenever I have to get out of my comfort zone, it's the most difficult to reach out to people who actually need to hear the gospel, to reach out to those who are unloved, who are rejected, who sometimes I feel like they don't deserve to hear the gospel. And thank Jesus for Jesus that I'm not the one who was on the cross because clearly some people wouldn't have received salvation because I would have discriminated against them. I mean, the first thing that I constantly think of and the love of Jesus and how gracious he is to us that he would be nailed on the cross and there are these people who keep spewing all these things to him. Save yourself if you're a king. I think that would have been the, just the, that's it for me. Like, that's where I would have drawn the line. And I would have said, you know what, actually God... <laughs> these people are not going to receive you anyway, I'm done. So I am going to save myself, literally like heal my hands, get down and be like, you guys, sort yourselves out. But that's not what Jesus did. And this is the compassion that he gives us. This is the compassion that he wants us to approach people, that we don't use our natural eyes, rather the spiritual eyes, because that will help us to love in a way that we could never love. The second point that I want to talk about is the people he chose. See, when Jesus paid taxes, he paid taxes just for him and Peter. And whenever we think of the people that Jesus chose, right, whenever we think of the picture of the disciples, this is normally what you see, right? 
well, maybe not this exact picture, but this is what the disciples looked like. I've never seen any, a picture any different from these guys. They just, this is what they look like. They're very old. And Jesus took so many journeys. I don't know how they managed to get through, like Galilee, Jerusalem, back to Galilee, back to Jerusalem. I don't know how. And if you actually look at the map, it's a very long distance to be walking. And this is the picture that we know of the disciples that Jesus was speaking to in, in the Mount of Galilee and the power of art. But actually, this is not true because Jesus paid taxes only for him and Peter, which means that the disciples were under 18, around the age between 16 and 18, because they didn't pay taxes. So this is the picture of what the disciples would have looked like. It's actually young people. And it makes sense why Jesus would have been able to make all the journeys with them. Because they were young and strong. <laughs> because they were young and strong. First Timothy 4, verse 12 to 16 says this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I want to stop there. If Jesus was giving this mandate and he was giving it to young people, how can you entrust a message to literally change the world and give it to 16 and 18-year-olds? I mean, I don't know if you've encountered teenagers. I was a nightmare for my parents. I believed I knew everything, only to eat a humble pie in my 20s and realize I knew nothing. But I would literally communicate with them as though they were ancient. Like, I felt like my parents lived under a rock. Because I would constantly, you know, say things and, and they'd say, no, this is not how life is. And I'm like, how would you guys know? You are so old. <laughs> like, how would you know? I mean, you're so old and so ancient. This is not how life is now. And I see it with my niece and nephew. They just, they think I'm so old. And they know everything. And this is how it goes. So how can you entrust a message to change the world and give it to people who think they know everything. But there must be something about young people that Jesus trusted so much that he could give them the great commission, that he could choose them as the people. And so when it comes to the scripture in 1 Timothy 4, then it means that we need to take it seriously as young people. Can you see how I included myself there? Let no one despise you for your youth because Jesus didn't do it with the disciples. He saw world changes in them. He saw people who were ready to make disciples of all nations. But set the believers an example in speech. So how do you speak then? What is your speech like when you know that you were entrusted with the most important message? How then do you speak about this nation how do you speak about the things that are uncomfortable? How do you speak about the things that make you feel like there's no hope? How do you set an example? How do you bring hope in that? What is your speech like? How's your conduct? Not in front of people, but when you're alone, in your private space. Do you do it in love? Is it filled with faith? Is it pure? Because that is what we should take seriously. Why? Because we are entrusted with the most important message. 
And they did carry it out. These teenagers did carry out the mandate. And that's my third point, the mandate. What is the mandate? It's the rest of Matthew 28 from 18. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you all the days, with you always to the end of the age. First Timothy 4, that I read, the second part of it says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Do you know, if you've had the privilege in this room to receive a prophetic word or a couple of prophetic words, instead of constantly wanting more, why don't you immerse yourself in what the Lord has spoken using his word? And if you've never received a prophetic word, here's your prophetic word. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why these things are important? Because you never know who you're going to encounter. And so making disciples actually makes a difference. I want to show you a picture of someone that you might know. And if we're recording, I'm not going to mention their names before I get dragged is what young people say. So this guy was actually a Christian leader at Fitz University. We were actually good friends. When I started leading the campus ministry, I was clueless. I still am, but with a little bit of knowledge now. But I was clueless. And so all I did was evangelize all day, every day. Like That's literally what I did on campus. And he was leading another organization. And our campus ministries, his organization and, and the Every Nation organization, then his people, were the two biggest um, campus ministries on campus. So we would literally like meet maybe once a week, you know, like share stories, leadership stories, and, and kind of like exchange information. I shared like the purple book with him. Um, and the difference between the two of us is that I had a mentor, I had a disciple, I had someone who was walking me through my journey, who was discipling me, who kept on checking on me, I had an accountability partner. I had people who were, who were able to point out things, you know, blind spots in my life who, were, who helped me with whether it's generational curses or breaking certain things or dealing with certain things. But I had someone that I was accountable to. I had someone who was leading me. I had leaders that I was submitted to. And he was a solo man. And he led his campus ministry. And he was really charismatic. I knew that, you know, he'd change the world. But my, in my mind, he was going to change the world through Christianity. But when he started studying his master's, I think he backslid. And he then, obviously, today <laughs> leads one of the movements that are penetrating our campuses today. And he uses that same gift. What if someone 
had walked with him? What if someone had taken the time to disciple him? What if he had allowed himself to submit his life to someone else? What would his life look like today? Because I guarantee you that he'd still have the influence. But how would that influence look today? That's how crucial it is to know that discipleship makes a difference. And you might not know who you actually get to sit next to or who you get to walk with. It might not be your role to know how far their life is going to go more than your obedience to just walk with them and disciple them and build those biblical principles in their life. For as long as we did ministry together and would meet every Friday and we'd talk about the Bible and we'd go through the purple book, he remained in community. But he didn't have someone he was walking with. That's all he had with me. But I had people who I was walking with. And I can guarantee you that I, I don't know where I would be if I was not discipled. But I know that I would still be in leadership. Here's the last thing that I want to share. This picture that the Lord gave me at the beginning of the year when we were praying. So before we fast, I usually fast. I'm, I'm that type, you know, like Jesus says, come to me as you are. I'm like, I'll first take a bath before I come into the Jesus shower. So I've, I fast and then I join the global fast. Because <laughs> not that I don't trust you guys or the global fast, but I just think that I need Jesus more. Anyway, so when I was... I do, actually. You wouldn't be safe if I didn't stick to Jesus. But when I was fasting, the Lord gave me this picture. And this is a plant that's protruding through concrete. And he said to me, you know, in the past couple of years, past two, three years, so many people have felt like their lives have been so dry, like a concrete. And it's been such a tough season. I mean, concrete is really hard. And I don't want to, you know, labor on this point, but this is exactly what, you know, Gideon shared before. And I thought to myself, oh, you're stealing my sermon. Not really, because I think that that's what the Lord is actually doing in this place. And so he spoke to me and he said, there are going to be so many plants. This was, this was specifically to campus ministry that... There's so many campus ministries that went through a really tough season and leaders couldn't do anything on campus. We couldn't go on campus. Some couldn't get any of the online going and many of them lost a lot of students and there's been despair and hopelessness. But the Lord is saying that for some of the areas where it's still hard, you're still going to see life protrude through the hardness. You're still going to experience life because the foundations that you've laid, you see the foundations that were laid even before COVID took us by surprise, they remain. And the faithfulness of constantly watering not only our lives with the word of God, not only our lives with being in community, but watering other people's lives, we're going to begin to see life come through. And he said, campus ministries will not die. And I thought, wow, thank you, Lord. But then I started thinking of my own life. Because for me, the past two years, I've felt like just going and going and going and going and going. And it feels like just there's no time to stop. Just keep going and not deal with anything. But that's the same promise that 
he gave to the campus ministries, I felt he's, he was speaking that word to me. And I, when I was praying this week, I felt like he's speaking to this congregation. That in the hard areas where it feels like no life is even going to grow anymore, it's going to begin to sprout life. And I pray that over you. Can I just quickly pray before I end? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you went all the way. And thank you that even in our lives you go all the way. Father, I pray for those of us who our hearts are sick because of hope deferred. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the courage, the strength, and the hope that we need to wait until the longing is fulfilled in our lives. I pray, Father God, for every family that's represented in this room. I pray, Father God, for every difficulty that we might be facing or different families might be facing. I pray for individuals who are facing sickness, job losses, hardship, that you would bring restoration. Thank you, Lord, that you're not in just the business of restoring, but you redeem. I pray, Father God, for everything that the enemy has stolen, that you would redeem. I pray, Lord God, that in everything that the locusts have eaten, that you would redeem. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to be able to preach the gospel boldly, knowing that the more we preach the gospel, the more the gospel gets into us. Bring us, bring the healing, Lord, that we need today, but even when we haven't received it, I pray that you would give us the courage to step out. So for those of us who lack the boldness or are shy or introverts, I pray that you would speak courage. For those of us who are extroverts but still don't have the courage to step out, I pray for your courage. I pray, Father God, that we would see the gospel as the good news that it is, that we would know that it makes a difference, and not just a difference in people's lives, but it gives them life and not just life in abundance, but eternal life. So open our spiritual eyes to see the way you see and open our spiritual ears to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.